Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, this is Svi Spivak reporting live from the Human Factors and Ergonomic Society annual meeting. I have the pleasure here of sitting with Dr. Colin Drury, who is a distinguished professor at University at Buffalo, New York. He is, as well, the chair for Department of Industrial Engineering. He no. Correction on that. I, I used to be. Used to be. Former I, chair of department. I am, yeah, I am now uh, emeritus. Emeritus. Professor Emeritus. Which means they don't pay me anymore. <laughs> The pursuits of science, right? Yeah. Um, as well, you are the former manager of ergonomics at Pilkington Glass, and you spent that was a long time. Years yes. there. Yeah. I um, only spent about three years there, but I spent about forty years at SUNY Buffalo. Okay, so we'll focus more on that. Um, you have uh, over three hundred pu publications on topics in industrial process control, quality control, aviation maintenance, safety, and I'm soon learning now staffing models. Yeah. Um, so, Colin, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Good um, to be here. Yeah. So what brings you in particular to Human Factors, um, the HFES annual meeting this year? Uh, I've been coming for many years, so I know an awful lot of people here, and uh, it's good to catch up with what's going on. It's also very good to catch up with people I don't know, young people who are doing different stuff. I, I look around and say, hey, I don't know a thing about that. It would be a good thing to have a look at. So I come and do that. Uh, I'm giving a poster this afternoon um, on um, staffing models. And yesterday I gave a talk on cybernetics in the cybernetics symposium. So that was fun too. So cybernetics, we've touched on staffing models and your career has been in aviation, quality control, and so you seem to be all over the place. How has yeah. that uh, come to be for you? Uh, well, I, I got into this whole field sort of by chance. Uh, I was graduating in physics in 1962 uh, and had, um, just about to get married and thought it might be a good idea to get a job. So I uh, went on the notice board in the physics department and there was somebody advertising for someone to do ergonomics, cybernetics and anthropometry. And none of those were in any dictionary I could find. 1962. So I applied for the job and got it. <laughs> you know, I didn't know any less than anyone else. And so I've been doing it ever since. And it was so exciting to get into a field that was new and it was really helping people and helping all sorts of different people. Um, you always had to tell people what it was. This was like 50 years ago. You still have to tell people what it was. It's ridiculous. Yeah, we should be out of that years ago. But uh, we still keep on at it because we're going into new areas where people don't know what we do. Interesting. And so the bulk of your career has been, of those three, you said it was ergonomics, cybernetics, and... Um, anthropometry. anthropometry. I so never did any anthropometry at all. No, but uh, okay. I have a couple of papers on it, but almost nothing. Um, but uh, cybernetics, control theory, uh, that was, I thought, just a delightful thing to do because as a physicist, I was a mathematical modeler. And here is a place where you can do mathematical models of uh, human control of systems, um, anything from flying airplanes to riding bicycles, um, human control of movement. Um, so I've done a lot of that, so I enjoyed that. It was really not known as cybernetics, it was generally known as control theory. 
so I did a, a fair amount of that then. Uh, but I wouldn't say I'm an expert in it. I've used it. Um, I was talking yesterday about um, the law of requisite variety which is a, a wonderful thing and it says that uh, if you want to control a system and the system has got disturbances coming in then the variety that that disturbance can take has got to be matched by the controller. The controller has to have at least as much variety of things they can do to affect the system as the disturbance coming in. And so the law of requisite variety just says that the um, variety that gets through to the output which you're trying to keep constant in the process uh, is just you, you subtract the disturbance variety from the uh, controllers variety and that gives you how much disturbance gets through and a really good control system no disturbance gets through so whatever the temperature outside the temperature in here is pretty darn constant because it has enough degrees of freedom in the control to take care of what the weather throws at it from outside. Uh, and so that's been an important principle in all sorts of things, um, like in process control, obviously, which is what I've used in quality control. Um, but also when you're looking at uh, how you as a human factors ergonomics group in industry respond to their needs. Um, stuff is coming at you all the time can you help us with this can you help us with that we've got a problem down in in this place um, and so if you don't have enough variety in what you do then you can't respond to all these things so you need a lot of variety in a human factors ergonomics group in industry they may bring you in to do uh, what uh, physical ergonomics and uh, reduction of musculoskeletal injuries but you don't pay people to come in and get injured, you pay them to actually do something. And you find perhaps that the doing something is what's causing the injury. We did some work years and years ago uh, with uh, Victor Paquette and um, in a company that made um, molded sinks. You've seen these things where there's a molded kitchen top or bathroom top with a molded sink in it. Um, and they were getting musculoskeletal injuries of the wrist and you found out this was from sandpapering these. Well the reason for sandpapering them was that the process control wasn't very good so it got ridges on you had to sandpaper off. If they improved the process control and we knew how to do that, you didn't even need to have people doing this. So many times what you're called in for is not the real problem and so you need to have a broad general array of skills in order to do that. Now, if you're in something where it is exactly one problem, um, flying a commercial airplane, for example, designing cockpits and so on, that's a very, very specific problem. You can spend your whole life just doing that and you don't need to worry about other stuff. But um, much of the time, uh, say, when, you, when you're running a group in industry or you know, even consulting for industry, you need to be able to see beyond what are the presenting symptoms to what are some of the underlying causes which may not be what the person who brought you in thinks they are. So that sounds like a root cause analysis in yeah. a way or a fishbone diagram. Yeah. In China. And, and that relates to the law of requisite theory in stating that you yeah. need a variety and... Yeah. If you don't have a variety of your responses, right. then you are not going to be able to solve the proper problems. So, and so people come in with a fixed idea, oh, this is a uh, uh, 
mental models problem or this is a perceptual problem of visual inspection um, and it may turn out to be something quite different this is actually a physical problem Wow, fascinating mm. and this is your recent recent uh, line of work I guess that you've been focusing on right and you said you mentioned we talked earlier there are all sorts of stuff <laughs> yeah that you've been all over the map and you're sort of astounded at yourself about how you've kind of touched on so many different industries and, and processes and yeah so, and we're talking yeah well if you say if, if you aren't able to respond to these these calls then you are better know people in the society who can right so I know when I'm beat somebody calls me in about um, oh vibration I haven't a clue about vibration so I wouldn't certainly wouldn't tattle that I would bring in somebody who actually knew what they were talking about in that area Applying the law of requisite theory to your own, um, yeah. to your own academic endeavors. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Oh, hey, Steve. Okay. How's it going? Sorry. Um, <laughs> um, and I understand you have a private pilot pilot's license yourself. Yeah, I've okay. used it for years. Oh, okay. Um, I got it as a birthday present, and uh, I've always been interested in aviation. Uh, I was born in England in World War Two and you had to actually know what sort of plane was going over even at three or four years old to know if you had to go and you know, run into a shop because it was going to shoot you up or bomb you or whatever. So, so was that the beginnings of your, what led you into the aviation industry then? Would yeah, you say? I, I never did any work in aviation until the 1980s. Um, and at that time, um, there was a, a bad incident in Hawaii, the Aloha Airlines plane, uh, the roof of the plane started to peel back in flight. And what it was is the inspection of the rows of rivets had failed. They hadn't seen cracks forming between the rivets. And so it opened up like a zip fastener. And uh, one um, cabin crew who was serving uh, drinks at the time was sucked out. It was terrible. Um, but the person who was flying it, the lady it happened, flew it back to uh, one of the islands and landed it successfully, even though the plane was really weak. Um, but the whole issue came up at that point, um, what do we know about the reliability of human inspectors doing this job of, of looking for cracks on the rivets? And um, I'd done an awful lot of work in similar stuff in industry um, on quality control and visual inspection and so on. Um, and so uh, I went along to some of the meetings and made myself enough of a nuisance that they said, we better go and do something on this. So I did, I worked for the FAA for quite a long while on, on inspection, um, how a quality system can work um, in maintaining something rather than producing it. Because hmm. I'd been in manufacturing uh, much of the time. So I'd looked at uh, human factors and quality control in manufacturing for years, done mathematical models, I had a great time doing this. Um, but then when the aviation stuff came up, uh, I was suddenly in aircraft hangars at three in the morning, climbing all over Boeing 747s looking for cracks with them. Uh, so that was, that was exciting. Wow. And so that's how I got back into aviation. Uh, and I've been doing aviation inspection, quality control, and then more general maintenance. Um, and then even got onto things like uh, the space shuttle and got to, uh, got to work on that. How do you design procedures so that people can actually follow them and will follow them properly? 
so I got to crawl around the space shuttle and crawl around the solid rocket boosters and so on on the uh, on the takeoff that's dolly. Inc that's incredible that that experience came to you just through natural course of events, if you Yeah, because, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I was fairly well known by then in this inspection field, and they said, well, if you can do it for airplanes, then it's not too difficult to do it for uh, the uh, space shuttles. So I got involved with that. I mean, that is, that is really cool. That was that appeals to students, certainly, when you were teaching. You show them pictures of, you know, how they're doing it in uh, uh, on the launch pad. Um, encourage people to go into the field. Nice. And then, I know we're jumping all over the place, but that's, I guess, representative of your career in a way. But, I mean, you've also done some, is it recent, I guess, research with um, Anne Besant on trust and automated systems? And is that uh, yeah. related to this idea of inspection and maybe dealing with the, you know, the, the advanced technology and how there's millions of lines of code in these giant systems yeah. and so how we can trust it, that? As a that user? particular project wasn't. Um, I had done similar projects, and in fact, I've got two, three papers on these. Um, is it okay? Yeah, we're good. Yeah, trying to uh, look at building a valid scale of something from scratch. Um, and I started off on uh, comfort, chair comfort, seat comfort. Okay. Um, and I did that uh, with one of uh, Dr. Helander's students. Um, and we developed it. And what we did, we went round to hundreds of people and said, uh, what do you mean by comfort? in chairs and they gave us all these words so we took these words and we looked up synonyms of them in dictionaries and we got several hundred words and phrases and so on um, about seat comfort and then uh, we took these out to people and said um, uh, how closely related are each of these words to comfort and then we took another group and said how closely are these related to discomfort to see if it's just two ends of the same scale or if there are different scales in there um, and so that boiled it down uh, with you know, dendritic analysis so you can see how they, they clump together, cluster analysis, um, into a much smaller number of scales uh, of comfort. And then we can validate these by getting an uncomfortable chair and a comfortable chair and making sure they did work, uh, doing factor analysis on it to find what are orthogonal factors in this. Um, so I'd done that already and then um, I uh, did this one on trust because uh, yeah, I've read the stuff on trust and it, it's really good stuff um, and I know the people who are involved with it um, but I thought well instead of sitting down and us thinking what ought to be in the scale let's do the same thing let's go out and ask hundreds of people what they mean by trust uh, and we did um, uh, trust institutions trust of people trust of machines and so on um, and did the same analysis, and that was the Gian Byzant Centrari paper. And it turned out to be probably my most quoted paper. <laughs> I think it's a I think it's a top hit on Google Scholar. If you uh, is it? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's uh, everybody started using it, and what we got was a set of scales which had been validated by this sort of multi-level process to get to that point. Um, and then uh, I always used to run a, um, a course on methodology, a graduate level course on methodology. And um, it never had more than about 15 students in, sometimes it was down to about six or seven. And we did a group project. And so we sat down and said, you know, here's an issue. 
let's look at the literature, see what we do on this project. And one of them was, um, uh, I said, well, how do you measure quality? What do people mean by quality? And we use pretty well the same methodology and looked at um, uh, quality of goods, quality of service, um, quality of life, things like this, and, and found some similarities between these and some quite differences between them. Um, and so that was another example of this. And then actually we did some work for Boeing, which we have not got published yet because they're, they're still using it, on um, uh, cabin comfort. What do you mean by comfort in an airline cabin? Legroom, ample legroom for a long, uh, tall person. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. yeah th this is important uh, because there are different things. There are different things that the designers can do. Um, air pressure, temperatures, windows, lighting, things like this. Um, turns out the, the most fundamental thing is how much space you've got. Uh, and we did the same thing. We sat on planes going across the Atlantic. We sat on planes on you know, one-hour short trips and interviewed people beginning and end of the trip or the middle of the trip as well if it was a long trip and um, got to scales of uh, comfort and uh, cab particularly cabin comfort and what mattered in there. And what you just mentioned about hopping on a plane and interviewing passengers about comfort and what that means to them, does that relate to your other work on you develop methods of a sort of eliciting the information from operators yeah. and observation it, methods? It was using exactly the same methodology. Nice. And uh, you know, that's why um, the company would like us in there because we'd use this methodology and, and it had worked several times and they thought it would work for them and it has and uh, they've been working ever since 10 years maybe, using these scales in their, um, in their sort of routine evaluations of factors affecting comfort. Wow. So uh, that was sort of unrelated to my other work, but it turned out to pull out some interesting things, you know, particularly this trust scale, um, which I thought, well, I'm probably not able to contribute to the whole thing of trust because I'm not running experiments in it. But what we were doing was getting broad population um, input onto what it actually means. So you're sort of taking subjective definitions or meanings of trust and you're yeah. making that more of a, an empirical definition and yes. sort of objectifying that. Yeah, with we're, we're the scale underlying right. it on the particular subscales that contribute to trust. Very, very neat. So that was, uh, I'm, methodology is, is always interesting, particularly for an academic. It's the thing which uh, is always fun to see what you can do that will be valid in the end. And so a lot of the human factors professionals here at this conference, um, a lot of them, their background is in psychology, IO, um, cognitive sciences, but yourself, your background is industrial engineering, right? And process control. Yeah, I mean, it, control, it was so. physics originally, and uh, then I got this job doing, uh, as I said, ergonomics, anthropometry, and cybernetics um, for the motor industry in England. They had at the time. Thank you. Yeah, they had at the time. Um, a, uh, a place called the Motor Industry Research Association. Most industries had a uh, came together with their uh, uh, societies that represented them and set up an institute to do research of interest to all of them. 
uh, and the thing I was involved with at the beginning was uh, how do you uh, uh, how should you design seating and control positions particularly in commercial vehicles uh, trucks and buses to fit people and so we did a lot of empirical stuff on that but I was only there like two or three years and I decided I probably ought to go and get an education in this <laughs> rather than just sitting here doing it and in 1964 there were probably four or five places in the UK doing serious work on this so I visited them and ended up at University of Birmingham where it was housed in the equivalent of an industrial engineering department called production engineering there. So uh, that's how I ended up going into industrial engineering and discovered things like statistics. I didn't know much about experimental design uh, because it, you don't teach physicists experimental design. You know, uh, there you know what you're doing, you get the data. If it doesn't all fall dead on a straight line, you repeat it until it does. <laughs> but uh, this idea of variability and so on um, was wonderfully new and so I learned a lot about that, I learned about operations research as well as what's going on in the much broader field of uh, ergonomics, human factors at that time. So uh, I guess just to end off with a question for our viewers here, our listeners, those who are in the engineering or more physics oriented fields, um, do you have a recommendation or a piece of advice for them on how to get involved with human factors or how to incorporate that or just a a grand message, I guess, to the engineers in the audience. I normally leave grand messages to other people who speak at this level. Uh, but, um, yeah, it, it's an inherently worthwhile field. You're making things better for people. Uh, and so it's inherently satisfying, uh, not like developing chemical weapons or something. Um, not that there's anything particularly bad about the people who do that, because I know some of them. But it's, uh, it's an inherently satisfying field to be in, and there's huge opportunities. Um, and you think it's all been done, and no way, there's new stuff every time. I mean, there's hundreds of papers here in this conference um, which show how you can move forward rather than looking backward. And I love that. That's a great note to end on. Okay. Thank you so much for your time today, Colin. And I hope you have a successful poster session today on staffing models. Yep. Um, and if listeners want to get a hold of you or find out about your work, where can they be directed to? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm on the HFES member listing, so I'm in there. Nice. Um, probably Drury at buffalo.edu works. Um, as does uh, my consulting group, which is just Colin at ergonomicsgroup.com. Fantastic. We'll end off the session with a, uh, a prototypical human factors answer to a question, human factors question, and that is, it depends. Yes. Thank, Thank you. you. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. 
These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.